As I said, I'm Peter, a compulsive overeater. Thank you, Tammy, my co-secretary, for asking me to speak. Um, I'm sure a lot of you have heard my story. Um, Hopefully, uh, I can tell someone else's story or sell a different version of my story. You know, that's the thing, my story. We talk about it as if this is our truth. And it's not. It's really the truth as I see it today, which is very different than five or ten years ago. And I think one of the things that OA has given me and the 12 steps have given me is a great ability to go back and change my past. You know, they say, you know, we don't regret the past or wish to shut the door in it. What it doesn't say is we get to go back and change the past. And we really do. And what I mean by that is, you know, I look back and say, well, this is the way my childhood was, da 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 da, and it was terrible, and it was awful, and there was chaos, and there was divorce, and there was physical violence, and there was all these things going on. And it was awful. And then you get down and do the inventory process and you get into taking a look at the people. Um, when I did my inventory, which is taking a personal inventory, and when we're, you know, looking to see where we were at fault, um, I didn't harm anyone. I said, I didn't harm anybody. So my sponsor very wisely said, did anybody harm you? And I said, oh, yeah, put that down. And he goes, there's your list. Because I thought everyone had harmed me. I was the victim. I had done nothing wrong. I was a nice guy. Why did this have to happen to me? The reality of it was, is I was setting up situations. I was acting in such a way that continued this behavior around me. I co-signed for all of it. So, when I get to go back and look at my past, it's a different past today than it was 20 years ago. And that is the beauty of the 12 steps. My childhood wasn't all terrible. It wasn't all awful. Was there some difficult times? Yes, there were some difficult times. But what I get to see is what my part was, and then also to see what's going on with everybody else. Um, One of the big things I think we don't talk about in the program, you know, is this ability to look at our lives in a different way. You know, when I take a look and I do an inventory, you know, I'm resentful at whomever. Pick a, you know, and, and I get to write down why I'm resentful at that person. And what does that affect? You know, it affects my self-esteem. Yeah, maybe. Does it affect my personal relations? Yeah, could be. Ambitions, pocketbooks, sexual relations. And then it's, what are the character defects that, if they were removed, would cause me to no longer have this resentment? And I get to take a look at that. Well, what did I do to put myself in this situation and then continue that anger or that hurt or that resentment? And if I have those removed, I no longer have the resentment. And then what I get to see is, oh, maybe there's a different perspective on how I get to look at my life today. And there's very few places in the world that says, you could be wrong. You could be wrong. Your version of events could be wrong. Let's take a look at it. And maybe there's a different version of events out there waiting for you to discover or waiting for me to discover. And that, I think, is one of the most unique aspects of OA and the 12 steps is that ability to go back and rewrite history. Because what I view my past as is what I walk around with today. If everyone hurt me, I was a victim. Guess what? Tomorrow I'm going to be a victim. It's that simple. And do I want to be a victim? No. Okay, good. Then I need to go back and clean up the past and really take a look at it and see if that was really the truth. Um, Why am I here? 
Well, Tammy asked me to speak. Uh, <laughs> uh, but the reason is, you know, I grew up uh, in a long line of illustrious compulsive overeaters, alcoholics, and drug addicts. And, you know, it's fascinating. I have a grandfather who loved the dead more than the living. He just totally neglected his kids. But he went back because uh, he traveled around the world and compiled a family tree in history going back to the 1620s. And it's fascinating to go back and look at this history. Uh, and what you see is drug addiction, suicides, alcoholism. I mean, it goes back. So genetically speaking, I was predisposed. Uh, as a kid, as I mentioned, a little bit of chaos. I love food. I've always been oriented towards food. Uh, when I was a year old, uh, I weighed about 30 pounds. And my mother took me to the doctor and said, he doesn't eat. <laughs> Doctor said, uh, does this kid look hungry to you? He's not eating because he's full. Stop trying to jam food down his throat. Uh, but that was her way. You know, she didn't know. I was the first kid. Um, and I don't know if that made me a compulsive overeater. Uh, but uh, genetics, plus maybe that, plus a few other things, probably added to it. And all I remember is... Everything was oriented towards food. I love sugar. Remember those Hershey chocolate syrup cans of chocolate syrup? I drink that. And I love the effect that I get from the sugar. Um, and as a kid, if I look back, and I forgot to bring pictures. Um, I was a chubby kid. I remember from the age of five, the doctor saying, you know, for nine years old, you're a perfect weight, but you're five. <laughs> you got to, you, you know, you can't have chocolate milk with lunch. You have to have just plain white milk. You know, don't have the sugar. Don't, you know. I already at such a young age, it was I had to eat something different, and it was always a problem. And um, I look back now at the pictures. I, I wasn't fat by today's standards. I, I was barely chubby by today's standards. But back in the '60s, you know, they were uh, a little bit more strict, I guess. Uh, so, struggled with weight, um, started playing sports uh, as an early teenager, got very, very involved with that, and that kept the weight down. And when I went to college, I stopped sports and started eating some more, and I could go to the cafeteria as many times as I wanted and put on a ton of weight. And it was, um, it was amazing. And literally in my first semester, none of my clothes fit. I had one pair of jeans that fit. And I remember going back, it was Christmas break, and I had that one pair of jeans, and my parents had been divorced for many years since I was about five. So I spent Christmas Eve with my father and Christmas Day with my mother, Christmas Eve with my father. I had to stop eating for like four days before Christmas to fit into anything other than these ratty old pair of jeans. Because we're going out for a nice dinner and all this. And I remember just starving for four days just to fit into them. Just, you know, and I remember not feeling that great, not being in a good mood going out to dinner with my father and his new girlfriend. And I get the usual lecture that you get from parents when you're in college. Uh, at least what I thought was going to be the usual lecture, but it was something different. And he goes, you know what your problem is? I'm like, no, what? He goes, you're a compulsive overeater. I was like, okay, that was a new one for me. And he goes, I'm a compulsive overeater. You know, you've got a problem with food, and, and you need to get in touch with this. I had to get in touch with it. I've been going, you've seen me yo-yo whole life, and he had. 
I remember one of my first diets, he went on the amino acid diet in 1976. I did too. I was in sixth grade. A sixth grader shouldn't be going on these crazy diets, but that was what I did. And he goes, you need to check out OA. And his girlfriend at the time was going to OA. That's how he found out about it. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, nothing of it after that. Go back to school. I started uh, losing weight. And very similar to what happened in OA, I, I needed to lose weight. There's a bunch of guys in the dorm. We all go have lunch and dinner together and then go to the gym. So I'd say, okay, God, I got I to gotta, I gotta lose weight. So he'd be in the cafeteria line. He goes, can I have this? No. Can you have this? Yes. Can I have seconds? No. So literally, I went to every meal with them, and they decided what I was going to eat. Then we go to the gym and work out. So I was turning my food over to someone other than myself. I advocated the decision-making process for food. Very similar to what some people do with a sponsor, in a way. And I lost, I don't know, 25, 30 pounds very, very quickly. And I thought, oh, this is amazing. And... Uh, I, I started losing weight. Right now I'm 190. I weighed myself this morning. And I got down to 100. I figured if I get to 165, at the time it was probably 175 in college. If I get to 165, life will be better. I don't know why, but grades will be better. My social life will be better. I'll get more dates with girls. Whatever. Get to 165. Nothing changes. Oh, obviously that's not the number. 160. Go to 160. Nothing changes. Except I'm hungrier. <laughs> and I go, oh, I, know what the, I know what the problem is. I need to go to 150. So I go down to 150. Still doesn't change. I get down to 144 pounds. That's the lowest I weighed myself. That's 45 pounds less than I am right now. Well, granted, I was, you know, 17 or something. Um... And nothing changed. That was sort of my anorexic phase. But I was finishing up school, and it was the summer. I had a girlfriend, so, you know, something worked out. And a compulsive overeater, surprisingly enough, who had just lost a bunch of weight before meeting me. Uh, that's usually how it works. And then you meet each other and become great binge buddies and gain all the weight back together. <coughs> Isn't that the way relationships are supposed to be? <laughs> um, and I remember for the summer... You know, having lunch, I was on my own. I didn't have all those people around saying, oh, you could have this, you couldn't have that. And I remember, like, lunch was a hard-boiled egg and a slice of tomato or something like that. You know, I'm like, it's 18. You know, that is not what an 18-year-old boy should be eating for lunch. But I knew that I had to keep a lid on it. The second I opened that door, even one meal, all the weight would come back on. It would be off to the races. So it was, you know, keep the tiger in the cage. And that was the way I tried to control it. And, it and, and, and I was not healthy. And I stayed at that weight for a while. And uh, at, I went back to school because my girlfriend at the time was going to summer school. It's in Charlottesville, Virginia, small town. And during the summer, you know, I kept my weight down, just controlling it like a crazy person. She didn't keep her weight down, and she gained like 25 pounds. I was like, oh, my God. I remember this thing about OA, and she was coming up for July 4th weekend. So I was like, okay, maybe, maybe we should check this OA thing out. Not for me, for her. So I went to uh, check out the meeting. It was July 4th, 1983. And that was my first meeting. And yeah, it wasn't a great meeting. Uh, it was a newcomer's meeting, and, you know, sad. 
sad. Uh, I don't know. I, and, and later on, it was just a crazy weekend, I remember. Just insane. And I remember later on, she went back down to school. I stayed home. And um, I went back to another meeting. And that's really where I heard the message at that second meeting. And they were talking about feelings and why they ate. And they were able to talk about it in a language I had never heard but completely identified with in a second. I did not have the emotional vocabulary, but they did. And I, it resonated with me. And that's why I knew, okay, this is it. And so I started going to meetings. I did not get abstinent immediately. There was one person in Charlottesville, uh, uh, OA, who had uh, a year of abstinence. She had just moved down from you know, somewhere like Boston. And there was like 10 people in OA down there. And uh, I remember going to meetings. I'm like, okay. You know, we'd have step meetings. No one had ever done the steps. And, uh, well, we'd sort of talk about what we thought the steps were like. And, um, you know, somehow I, I couldn't get abstinent because I wasn't willing to get honest with what the food was doing to me. And I wasn't willing to give up the food. I was trying to control it. Uh, I was also drinking a lot in this person who was a year abstinent was an AA and said, well, my abstinence is no alcohol, so if I'm going to sponsor you, you can't drink. I can only share with you what I've done that's worked. I thought, well, this is OA, singleness of purpose. I just won't tell her what I'm drinking. That's all. And I didn't. And lo and behold, I couldn't stay abstinent. You know, I couldn't be honest with one portion and then dishonest with that portion. And it wasn't until I got in touch with the fact that I had to stop drinking that I finally got abstinent. And that took about two and a half, three years. Uh, at the time I was graduating, I had no idea what I was going to do. Uh, and so everyone's going to law school. Everyone's doing this. I'm having a nervous breakdown, trying to get sober. So I said, I'm moving to Paris. <coughs> you know, in Charlottesville, Virginia, that's a pretty exotic thing to do. Uh, I didn't think further beyond that, but that's what I did. I moved to Paris. I didn't know what I was going to do when I get there. I don't speak French. Uh, <laughs> nothing. And I remember going to a meeting. Remember, I was at a youth hostel in Paris, and I shared a room with this guy who was a stand-up comedian for Los Angeles. And he was really annoying. And, uh, you know, you'd go, hey, let's go do this. Let's go. And I was like, no, i got to go do something else. And I always wonder, maybe that was like, you know, one of the big comics 20 years later. And, you know, back then I just was like, leave me alone. Get out of here. And so I went to a meeting at the American Church, an AA meeting. I, I couldn't find OA meetings. And, you know, at the end I raised my hand. I'm like, I'm Peter, an alcoholic from Charlottesville, Virginia. I need to talk to someone after the meeting. I had like a month of not drinking. And uh, I was like vibrating. So a guy came up to me. He goes, damn, I'm from Charlottesville, Virginia, too. I was like, hmm. He goes, there's another guy here from Charlottesville, Virginia. I mean, what were the chances of that? And then a woman came up to me and she says, are you in OA? Of course, me, I'm like, yeah. Like, how do they know? You know, did I get fat? What, you know, what was it? And she goes, well, I said to her, how do you, how do you know I was in OA? And she goes, I didn't. I just had this sense that you were. She goes, we have an OA meeting in English downstairs beginning in 15 minutes. Why don't you come to the meeting? So I did. And I ended up staying... Uh, in Paris for two years. I got abstinent, got sober. Uh, it was very easy to be abstinent in Paris. You know, if you want patisseries, you have to go in the patisserie shop. If I go to the butcher, there's no patisseries there. It's changed a little bit now, but 30 years ago, it was very regulated. I just didn't go into certain stores. So I couldn't bend on that stuff. If I didn't go in there to buy it, 
I wasn't going to eat it. So it became very easy for me to get abstinent. You know, today, here we are, 33, almost 34 years later. I'm still here. Now, I have 11 years of abstinence. So I got abstinent. I had 14 years of abstinence. No sugar. I could not imagine ever leaving OA. It was my life. In the late 80s, 90s, it was 90s. One thing that happened was I had a sponsor in Paris and... That fell by the wayside, and then I moved to Washington, D.C., then I moved to Philadelphia. I was in London for a while, and then L.A., and I never quite found that next sponsor. So I went years, decades, without a sponsor. I sponsored, but I didn't have a sponsor. And I slowly drifted away from the program, and I started putting on weight, and I couldn't figure out what was going on. And I thought, you know what? It's not working. Always not working. I was afraid I never had one single conversation with anyone in the rooms about this. I had sponsees who said, are you okay? What's going on? You know, but you know, yeah, I'm fine. And, uh, and I even had some of these God shots. I remember uh, I was thinking of getting this piano from my uh, grandfather. He lived up in San Francisco and it had to be completely redone. And I'm like, is it worth it or should I just buy my own? Have it redone or ship it down here and, and, and so I looked in the paper just at the first you know piano restore and I called this guy and I started explaining the situation well I got this piano it's a Stein it's not a Steinway I forget what it was but you know is it worth fixing it I mean you know how much would it cost and the guy says well I don't fix pianos for compulsive readers and I was like and it was a guy in OA and he started laughing he goes you know who this is and he told me, and I was like, holy God, because I haven't talked to you forever. And we started talking, and he goes, don't get the piano. Forget it. And uh, I got another piano, and he came over and tuned it. And we began talking, and he's like, you're not going to meetings, are you? And I was like, it was Jerry. And uh, I go, no. And he goes, are you okay with that? I go, yeah, yeah, I'm good. He goes, okay, well, we'd love to have you back, you know. And every six months, he'd come by, and I'd come over, fix the piano. We'd have a little conversation. Never pushed me, but he was there. And you think that was my God shot. It wasn't. You know, I had a couple of other of those God shots. And, you know, I, you know, basically, I came back because uh, I had to get in shape. I had to start running marathons. It was a doctor's orders. I had some heart issues. And I started doing that, and the weight came off. I did some crazy diets, like eat nothing but chicken. You know, chicken, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and, you know, lose... I got up to about 235 pounds uh, because I stopped going to OA and I could have sugar again. So I put on 70 pounds. Um, and I lost the weight by training for marathons and eating crazy diets. And I hurt my leg. And uh, thank you. And um, started to put the weight back on because I couldn't exercise. And I thought, <sighs> the only time I never had a weight problem was in OA. I don't want to go back to these people. I really don't want to do it. But I came back to Kitchen Sink. And it was around uh, October 31st, 2005. And some of the same people here today were there then. And I remember them from before. And it was so familiar because I've spent half of my life in OA coming to meetings. But at the same time, I did not want to do this. And, you know, as Terrell says, these are your people. Like it or not. And he's right. 
And this is the only thing that I have found that works for me today. Is it the food plan that works? No, it's not the food plan. And that's why a lot of the orientation that people have taken that focus solely on the food plan hasn't produced great numbers of recovered people. It's not the food plan. So it's a abstinence and it's the 12 steps. And it's working with others and getting the message from a sponsor. You know, my abstinence today, my food plan hasn't changed all that much. It's staying away from recreational sugar. It's basically three meals a day. I can have some snacks. I can pretty much eat anything outside that sugar realm. And there are times when eh, some stuff I should probably stay away from. And if I find I'm having it more than two or three times a month, let's say like pizza or something, mm, I got to dial it back, not have it. So, uh, and I talk to my sponsor about that when that happens. Um, but my abstinence also includes exercise, still exercise, daily meditation, having a sponsor, and having a home group. So, you know, it's like, oh, I had something that had sugar in it. Oh, my God, did I lose my abstinence? That was a big thing 15, 20 years ago. Everyone lost their abstinence every three seconds. So no one was abstinent and no one stayed. Because if the food plan is 100% your abstinence, you're never going to be abstinent. Ever. You can't do it perfectly. It's almost impossible. It's almost impossible. If your food plan is solely your abstinence, it has to be something more. This is only my opinion. Only my opinion. So, the question is, are you still exercising on a regular basis? Do you have a home group? Do you have a sponsor? Are you doing meditation? Are you following a food plan? Yes, all of those things. So if I had something that had sugar in it, oh my God, I lost my abstinence. No. There's a whole system in place. And it has to be. It has to be. It's not a two-track recovery of food plan, oh, and everything else. It has to be integrated. And, you know, today, um, you know, for instance, I'm 190. I really like to be 180, 185. I put on a few pounds. I, had to t- I stopped taking medication. I was taking antidepressants for years, you know, prescribed by a doctor. And I'm like, I'm not depressed. Why am I taking these? And so I talked to the doctor. I talked to my sponsor. We came up with a plan for over a year to slowly go through a process of, you know, declining um, um, dosage. And, you know, I knew, you know, there would be some side effects. Some of it was weight gain. Okay, so I took a year. It was very methodical. Followed the plan. You know, and I was like, well, and I put on a couple pounds because of it. That was two years ago. I don't think those couple pounds are due, you know, right that I'm carrying around now are due to something from two years ago. You know, I'm in my 50s and I have to eat less. That's the bottom line. Metabolism has slowed down. So that's what I have to look at today, you know. If I didn't have OA and the 12 steps in the recovery, I would be, oh my God, I need to do this. Okay, okay, I can have a protein shake for breakfast and I can have half an apple for lunch and do this and I can lose the weight and then, oh good, I got down to goal weight, now I can start eating again. And I begin that yo-yo back and forth in the obsession. Instead, I don't have to obsess about it. It's like, you know what? Let me take about a quarter of what I'm eating and push it off to the side of the plate. And if I'm still hungry a half hour later, Maybe I needed to have that. I can have it. I, I did that last night. I was still hungry. It was the first time in weeks that I've done that. But I was, you know, so I did. And, you know, slowly the weight will come off and I'll be back to where I was. But, or I could exercise more. That's the other thing. I don't want to exercise anymore. 
<laughs> you know, I've run 15 marathons. The thrill is gone. I could run more, but it's like, oh, I know I can do it. Do I really want to do it? No. Okay. So I have to cut down my portions. So we can get into sort of how that works in the steps in the Q&A, but it's my time to stop, so I'm going to stop. Thank you. This is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at the meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leader are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. Please remember, if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the podcast. Yes? What is your spiritual program that you use in OA? What is my spiritual program that I use in OA? Today, it is, uh, I try and do five to seven minutes of morning meditation. And the meditation is really simple. I sit in a chair, right? I close my eyes and I breathe. And I might count my breaths up to five, hold it for a second, and then release. That's it. Sometimes I can have a mantra, some word, whatever it is. The idea is to stop my mind for a second from going to let something of a higher power's message get in there. Um, I have been involved with organized religion. Uh, not the religion that I grew up with. Um, I got very involved with that. Uh, <laughs> it was fascinating, interesting. It did add something to my spiritual life. But I, I, I came away saying, you know, these folks need a program. <laughs> you know? um, just because you're in a organized religion uh, and a, uh, doesn't mean that you're living your life any better or you've figured something out. Uh, they're struggling the same as everybody else. Uh, and it, religion does fulfill a component of my spirituality, but it, it, it's not a huge component. So that's still there, but not as much as it used to be. Uh, a lot of it is meditation, prayer. I don't pray for anything really specifically anymore. I've removed that. Um, because it talks about we should not pray for ourselves but only to be of service of others because when I pray for something for me it increases the obsession surrounding that issue so if I'm praying for you know I'm out of a job and I can't find a job okay God please help me find a job i got to find a job you know, that increases that obsession of I need to find that job and then if I don't have that job then you know, okay the world is not right instead let me be of service and let things unfold. And even after all these years, I still will get into, oh no, higher power needs a little help here. He needs to know what really is going on and, you know, my problem, you know. So a lot of my spiritual practice is asking for help, letting go, watching the results, and knowing, and, and, and you know, some of that's age. And this is something we don't talk about in the 12-step programs. Oh, you're so spiritual. You... One thing, you don't get a lot of recovery unless you're old. <laughs> I'm sorry. You don't come in here. I'm, you know, I'm, a, I'm 31 years sober in AA. You know, I came in at 18. I've been in a, a, OA for 34 years. 
this July. You know, I had 14 years abstinence, now I have 11 years abstinence. You don't get 10 years of abstinence and be 20 years old. It just doesn't happen. And as age, a little bit of experience, a lot of program, there comes a more, for me, my experience has been in what I've seen of other people in the program, an acceptance and an ease of living if you are committed to the 12 steps and working on long-term recovery. It ain't going to happen in your 20s or early 30s. And I don't know if that's bi- biology or psychology, but that's just my experience. So I've got age on my side for once. You know, I, I look around at the program I can only speak for Ben since I'm a man, but you know, guys who've been in the 12-step programs with you know 20 years of recovery in their 50s and 60s are some of the most at peace, together, strong people I know. And when I've gone for help to them, inevitably I get wonderful, wonderful direction. And that is the result of the 12 steps and long-term recovery. Unfortunately, that takes time. So, and I couldn't figure out. It used to drive me crazy. God, they're so serene. They're, 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 and I, my head is just going a mile a minute. Well, I'm 23. That's just going to happen. And there's no way around that. Just my experience. How do you use the steps uh, on a daily basis? How do I use the steps on a daily basis? Well, I use uh, prayer and meditation. Um, I also use the 10th step in taking a look at, you know, writing down what is my part. And sometimes it's a, it's a mental 10th step. You know, I now have learned that in any situation, I could be wrong. Now, it used to be I was always wrong before I got abstinent. It was always my fault. I was the victim, but it was also my fault. I was always apologizing. I'm sorry. Someone said, I'm, I'm sorry. What? what? You, there's nothing for you to apologize here for. But I always felt like I had to apologize for something. Um, you know, now when I go back and look at it, there's always a different perspective that the 10th step offers me. Let's take this situation and look at it. This is what you perceived happened. Let's look at your character defects here. What would motivate, what character defects were motivating you in this situation? And maybe there's a different way to look at it. And that's what the 12 steps give me uh, in working the steps. Um, that is something that uh, has been very, very useful over time for me. Uh, the second thing, another part is, you know, a lot of times I have to take a look and I'll say, oh, this is a second step issue. This is really about, you know, God restoring me to sanity. I've got some ideas going on here and I really can't rely on them myself. I need to turn this over. Because if I'm left, you know, if I go off the reservation, so to speak, unchecked, very quickly things go downhill. So part of realizing that a higher power is restoring me to sanity means doing those things that I realize that left my own devices, uh, I'm not playing with a full deck. I need to have a sponsor. I need to go to meetings. I need to hear the message. I'm working with two guys that have been around the program for decades. And their weight is, they're now at an age where it is a serious health issue. It's not a, an emotional issue. It's going to kill them. And it's really getting into uh, affecting their life. And they can't come back to a meeting. And I said, I don't care. I said, look, I'm not going to waste my time talking to you until you get to a meeting. You've got to hear the message. 
It's not sharing. It's hearing the message over and over again. The message of recovery, what happened, what's the nature of the disease, what is the aspect of recovery. And unless I'm hearing that, I will get nothing. So I have to come back and hear the message. And that's really a second step issue. Because either I'm talking to myself or I'm listening to someone in program talk to me. Either way, I'm hearing voices. (laughs) It's just the way it is. Yes? How about your relationships? Through the years, what has happened, if anything has changed? Relationships. What is happening with my relationships? What has changed over the years? Relationships. uh, One, I, I was always afraid of people. Um, secondly um, I'm dealing a lot with family right now which I don't like uh, growing up uh, was you know, very volatile uh, situations and what I discovered was family is very important to me and, but at the same time it causes a lot of pain a lot of angst and a lot of heartache how can I put this down in just a couple of minutes? And, you know, when I came in the program, I was very, very angry with everyone in my family. Very, very angry. And to the point where a couple of years after I was in program, people would say, like, how are your parents? And I'm like, they're fine. Why? Oh, boy, when you came in, whew, you had something to say about them. And what I discovered was, and I've got a brother who's mentally ill and not treated, and everyone's like, well, you know, he's just a difficult person. He's an asshole. I'm like, no, he's mentally ill. He is mentally ill. Why don't we admit he's mentally ill? And then address that. And, you know, my mother would always call me up. And say, oh, you know, Tim said this. It's my brother. Oh, he said that. Oh, my God, I can't believe he's such an awful person. And I go, he's mentally ill. And our whole relationship was about him and what was going on and her navigating it. Why well, need help with him? And then, and I realized for 20 years, I would talk program, I'd suggest this, i suggest that. They never once followed my advice. So I said to my mother, I said, you know what? One day I had had it. I said, we're never having a conversation about my brother again. Do you realize that 100% of our relationship is you complaining about him and looking to me for advice to change him and change the... Re- we're not talking about him. I'm not interested in what he's doing. I'm not interested in what he's, how you're feeling about him. It is done. And it took a couple of weeks, a couple months, and I just, you get it? I said, yeah, I'm not going to talk about him. Sorry. She had nothing to talk to me about. That was really the end of our relationship because that was what it was. And, she get, and they called me up, well, what should, we need to do this, we need to do that. And I said, I'm not going to help you. I'm sorry. And they're like, well, you're our son. I go, yeah. And for 20 years, I've given you suggestions and you've never once in your followed it. So why are you asking? Go to a 12-step program. Go to a meeting. Do this. Do that. Get a therapist. Get an attorney. You never do any of it. So don't ask me. If you're willing to follow my advice, ask me for it. But I'm not going to give you my advice anymore. And that was, and that was very shocking uh, to them. And for me, what it was was freeing. For years, I had the same dream slash nightmare Night after night, and I remember talking to this with a therapist, I w- it was like a spy movie. I was running from something, or I was, someone was trying to get me, or I was, I was trying to get them, and it was very cloak and dagger. And it was my family. And when I stopped that type of interaction, those dreams stopped. I mean, it was the same dream every night. 
you know, my father was the patriarch of the family, controlled everything, tried to run their lives, tried to improve. It killed him. It literally killed him at 63. And I remember at his funeral, his brothers were there, and they're kind of looking at me saying, well, are you going to be the patriarch now? And I said, nope. I said, I don't have the money, and I don't have the stamina. You guys are on your own. I'm not going to help you out. I'm not going to run the family. I'm not going to help you run your, your businesses or help you with your kids or, you know, deal with your ex-wives or any of this stuff. I'm not doing it. It's done. Because it killed him. And what I've discovered, a lot of my interaction with my family, this isn't all families, is that it is, had been a one-way street, very much. Now, I'm very loving, and I try and show up for everybody. You know, today, father's passed away. My mother basically has Alzheimer's and, and dementia, and, which is great. She's very easy to deal with. I mean, she's, well, she was the type of person that, you know, she wasn't happy unless she had an enemy. A mortal enemy. And sometimes I was the mortal enemy. That's a very difficult relationship to have. Now she's just, you yeah, he's going, how are you? Fine. What are you doing? Oh, not much. Watching TV, you know. That's not much more interaction than we had before. After I sort of, you know, stopped uh, the, the, the interaction, you know, dealing with my brother the whole time. And, you know, that's where she is. She was a compulsive overeater. She never wanted to stop. All she wanted to do was eat. She retired and waited to die. She's waiting to die. You know, she can't walk. Uh, and there's all this stuff going on. And we had a whole psychological workup. The nurse said, she's fine. She can walk. She, she doesn't want to. She doesn't want to. She just wants to eat. She's not even to have the energy to kill herself. She just wants to eat and just hope that it ends soon. That's what's waiting for me. If I leave away. So it's a really potent reminder. So, I mean, that's unfortunately what that has done or what I've allowed it to do is it really helps. It, it really makes me keep people at arm's length. And it makes having close relationships very, very, very difficult. And it is a struggle that I've been working on. Um, I have a few very, very, very close friends. Uh, and that's it. I mean, at work, I've been in the same office for 22 years. If you've been there 15 years, I kind of know who you are. Other than that, I don't, I'm like, who's so-and-so? I'm like, I don't know. Who is that? She's been sitting outside your door for three years. I go, oh, okay. I, I don't, you know, I'm not mean. I just, you know, I keep my distance from people. And that's not necessarily a good thing. Um, so I've learned that, you know, to protect myself, keeping people at arm's length, I've learned how to create a boundary, but at the same time I find that it, it really also creates some barriers. And so that's something I'm working on, you know, continuously. Yes, I have a wife and I have two kids. Um, and yeah, that's always a struggle. Uh, my, my biggest fear was that, uh, the kids would inherit my compulsive overeating. And, uh, what's great about having kids was, uh, I started to get abstinent or tried to get abstinent, um, when my son was two in 2002. I didn't, I, I stopped uh, eating sugar about 2003 or so, although my absence was 2005 when I came back to OA. I remember I lost some weight and he goes, why is your stomach so large? 
I goes, my stomach large? And then he goes, yeah. I said, do you think I'm fat? And he goes, yeah. <laughs> and I said, well, I can't have sugar. And I had it for a long time, and I really have to stop having sugar. And going back to OA, I didn't have sugar. And kids are very literal. If they, they'd be like, does this have sugar in it? No, you can't have it. He can't have sugar. You know, go in somewhere, I take them to have to go get ice cream or something. I'm not going to have it. And they're like, you can't have it. You've got to stay outside. <laughs> it could kill you. Because they would say, yeah, sugar would kill it. They'd hear that and they take it very literally. So they're great. It is really hard to try, if I tried to binge with them around, because it'd be like, no! So, which is great to have. The other aspect, my son is entirely non-compulsive. I sort of look at him sometimes like, wow, my daughter, yeah, I think she's, she's got that personality, you know. She loves the sugar, but she's got that addictive personality. And it's just a matter of time. And I talk about it with her. You know, uh, I don't necessarily... I've begun to share with my son being an AA and uh, OA. Uh, I've taken my daughter to meetings, but, you know, she watched a little video. She, she could care less about what went on. I don't talk a lot about program with them. Um, but what I do talk about is my relationship with food and relationship with uh, substances and how everyone in the family has had a problem and there's a really good chance that maybe they could too. We don't know. Hasn't been writ- that chapter hasn't been written. And um, it, um, so, you know, I'll talk to my daughter and say, you know what? When she's had a lot of sugar, I go, I used to eat a lot of sugar like that and it got to the point where it, I couldn't stop and it became a huge problem and it became an emotional problem, it became a health problem, and I don't want to see that happen to you. Do you want to go through your life where you have to refrain from ever eating sugar? She's like, no. (laughs) I go, well, maybe you should think about when you're eating this, do you really need to eat it? And just begin to look at what you're doing here with food. I don't tell her to stop. And, um, but I let her know that I had that problem and there's a solution and maybe one day, hopefully she won't need it, but it's here if she does need it. And with that, my time's up. Thank you.